Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up, you'll be hearing from David Chadwick, former college and pro basketball player who now leads Forest Hill Church in Charlotte. He provided some insight into following the fundamentals of Christ. Then it's noted young adult fiction writer Mary Weber addressing a variety of issues confronting teenagers today in her latest novel. Plus, Jaleel Dawood, who founded World Refugee Care and leads the Arabic Church in Dallas, giving insight into ministry opportunities the church has toward refugees. And on this edition of The Intersection, it's Dave Cole of the Outward Focus Network, bringing to light some principles that the church can learn regarding how it can reach out to people, principles demonstrated by Harley Davidson. Finally, in the aftermath of the shooting at a congressional baseball game practice, John Smirak of The Stream offers observations about the nature of political rhetoric in America. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. David Chadwick is a former college basketball player at the University of North Carolina under the leadership of Hall of Fame coach the late Dean Smith. He now serves as senior pastor of Forest Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's written a book called From Superficial to Significant, What It Means to Become Great in God's Eyes, a book that includes sports analogies illustrating biblical principles. Now here's David Chadwick. I have been in ministry for a long time, and, and the church has grown under my leadership, fortunately. Um, and one time I got in the mail recently a survey asking me how fast our church had grown and if we would fill out this survey, we could very well be one of the fastest growing churches in America. And at the end of the year, they would list the top 25 fastest growing churches. And and something in my heart just sickened when I read that. I went, it, has the church now become like college sports teams that we rate the top 25 largest, fastest growing churches? And that is what defines success. And I realized there are a lot of faithful pastors and Christians out there just laboring tirelessly for the glory of God, not seen by anybody. And it made me ask the question, what's really greatness in God's eyes? Is it really size? Is that what's significant to him? No, it's much more than that. So I went to the Bible and I looked at all of the greats that are there, like the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, the Great Exchange. And I listed 10 of them out. And I thought to myself in athletic terminology, here are the 10 ways to play the Christian game. These are the fundamentals of the faith. And if people would practice these things, that would make them great in the sight of God. So that's what motivated me to write the book, to describe those 10 greats, those 10 fundamentals of the faith. And, and I hope I did that ably. You had mentioned earlier that one of these 10 fundamentals in the Christian life is the great exchange. And I wanted you to elaborate just a bit on that. Well, Bob, the great exchange, again, is the gospel, and and I'm convinced that every single follower of Jesus needs to not only understand the gospel, but preach the gospel to themselves every single day. Once you understand the gospel, that God loves you not based on your works, but based on simply what Jesus did on the cross, you have a new identity in your life. And no longer do you define yourself by your human performance. You're defined by what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And, Bob, that sets you free. It sets you free from all of those impositions of our culture and society on what defines greatness. It keeps us from working ourselves into a frazzle where we don't feel like our lives matter anymore. Once we know the great exchange and we know we're loved by God, adopted sons and daughters into his family, 
we have significance in his sight, then the tawdry baubles of this world that cry for significance don't really matter. And again, we're set free to live a life fully for the Lord, not trying to work ourselves to death to define our own significance by our works. There's also the great commandment, and you've divided this up into two parts. What would you say would be a key or two to developing or growing in these fundamental elements of our faith? Bob, I used in the book the illustration of basketball recruiting. Um, Coach Dean Smith, my mentor and coach for my four years at North Carolina, one day showed up at one of my high school basketball games. And I knew of him because he was uh, becoming a great nationally known coach. Um, But I looked in the stands and couldn't believe he was there. Then thereafter, he made a phone call. He came and visited me, invited me then to come to North Carolina on a weekend campus visit, and ultimately offered me a scholarship. And the point I make in the book in telling that story is I did nothing to make Coach Smith recruit me. There was nothing meritorious within me that allowed him to come and initiate that contact with me. It was all about what he wanted, and the first contact of the covenant relationship, if you will, was him contacting me. And, and I think the same is true with us and the Lord. First uh, John 4, 10 says, this is love, not that we loved him, but that he first loved us. Uh, long before we ever loved him, he first chose to recruit us. He first chose to initiate contact with us. He first chose to make the first phone call. He's the one who offered us the scholarship. And if you could just get in touch with the overwhelming fact that God, the creator of this universe, wanted you on his team, he recruited you. I mean, it's just an overwhelming feeling of Mm. being loved. I, I think some days, why in the world did Dean Smith ever recruit me? I mean, I look at guys that played at North Carolina from Michael Jordan to Phil Ford to Mitch Kupchak, all of those guys, and yet my name is on the list of all of those lettermen, but not because of me, but because Coach Smith wanted me. Again, just think about your name being written among all the saints in heaven, not because of anything meritorious within you, but because God, the eternal Father of the universe, recruited you to be on his team. He asked you to sign the scholarship, and the scholarship is irrevocable. It can never be broken. Mm. He loves you that much. How could you not love a God who loves you that much? Mm. David Chadwick here on The Intersection. The church's website is foresthill.org. His site is davidchadwick.org. The Intersection continues now with young adult fiction writer Mary Weber. In our recent conversation, she discussed her latest novel, The Evaporation of Sophie Snow, and shared about some of the major issues she includes in the book. Technology and relationships are two of the areas that she covers. From that recent conversation, this is Mary Weber now. It's set about it's probably about 20 years in Earth's future, and the concept is really um, one that, you know, if readers enjoy the Hunger Games or Ender's Game or The Circle, they're probably really going to enjoy this because that's kind of what I sort of, um, those are probably some of my influences, I would say. And so um, the the premise of the story actually is that um, we have it, you know, here we are um, a few years in the future. We've had a few, we've gone through a few world wars and Earth is kind of crippling along. And then, um, we, so we have our main character, Sophie Snow, and her and her brother are gamers. So she's a gamer, 
she works behind the scenes in kind of a, um, a virtual reality situation. And yet her brother works in the arena as one of the players of these vast fantasy fighting games. And what's super interesting is that right after I finished the book and I turned it into my editor, she sent me a note and said, did you see this on NPR this morning? And NPR had just done um, a uh, like a special on basically exactly what these games are in the book. And so it was super fascinating, like, oh, we tapped into that. Wow. But um, so it's basically they're in a fantasy fighting arena. She's a gamer who it, it, her virtual reality aspects can interact in the live games that he is playing in. And so there happens to be an explosion and that goes off and he is supposedly killed. And um, But Sophie really believes her brother is alive. And so the story is her kind of going on this journey to – find for certain reasons she needs to find her brother obviously and then in the midst of that the other main player is Miguel he's an ambassador to the aliens on this you know planet that has a few years before that erupted I guess I should have said that huh so future earth but then this ice planet erupts into earth's solar system and is sitting near the moon and it has aliens on it and so um, Miguel is this ambassador to that one of the only people allowed to go up to the planet and so he and Sophie have um, a past, and he also is being blackmailed for some of his uh, pretty messy past, his sordid past. And so she has to convince him to let to take her with him to the planet. And these aliens um, might be good for Earth, and they might not be so good for Earth. Let's talk about, I guess what you might say, humanity and and how it is that, you know, obviously we as believers in Christ, we have the nature of God— we are also placed here on this earth as human beings. So when you talk about really being human and learning to relate to one another as human beings, how do you see that played out here in this latest novel? I'm writing the people that I know and the teens that I know into these stories because my heart is is that they then get to follow that, that thread of truth and hope out of the story. And so... Um, I just personally really feel passionately about I we live with real people. I am a real person. I'm going to write about real people. But at the end of the day, I'm also going to show the kindness and the love and the grace of our Father. You know, it's, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, and that has certainly been true in my own life. And um, so I just think that that extra measure of grace to be presented over reality. And as you know, my books are um, – they're published by Thomas Nelson, but they are published directly into the general market because I work, you know, with teens who are mainly public school kids. And um, they also, that's where they're all reading. Like the, all the teens I know, they're reading in the general market and they are looking for something. And um, so, and I, I personally love books in the general market and that's not to just Christian books at all, but I believe that um, Maybe to me, a lot of the story of the Gospels and a lot of the heart of Jesus was that he was working with real people and he was never afraid to show here are real people with real struggles and real life. And, you know, one of the major points in the evaporation of Sophie Snow is the relation, relationship aspects between Sophie and her mom. And here's I tried to present it in a way that here is a mom that I've seen I've seen reflections of this in many of the parents that I work with and that I counsel and that she is busy and she has these, you know, this life that she's created. And yet at the same time, 
the fallout of that, that of not always being there for her daughter and what that has done to her. And yes, it has caused Sophie to make choices because it's caused Sophie to wonder what her worth truly is. And so, and yet at the same time, we also see from the side of the mom of she's really trying to do the best that she can. And you'll see that even more in the second book. But, um, but then we also see here this relationship between Miguel and Sophie, where they have had this past. And yet some of the way that he has treated women in his past is as a direct, you know, um, result upon Sophie and her choices and um, and of the way that she views herself and views him. Mary Weber here on The Intersection. Her website address is com. Well, Jalil Dawood is the founder of World Refugee Care and pastor of the Arabic Church in Dallas, Texas. He's also the author of a book called The Refugee, A Story of God's Grace and Hope on One Man's Road to Refuge. In our conversation, he described the work of World Refugee Care and shared a biblical perspective regarding refugees. From that recent conversation, this is Jaleel Daywood. I think what's happening is the church becoming too political. You know, the, we need to support the government. We need to vote. We need to seek the right leader. We need to pray for our president. And if he decides to ban certain nation, we need to stand by him. Uh, till he finds a better way or no way, whatever he decides, he knows he got the information that helps him make those decisions. And you and I, we don't have that information. So if he wants to stop these people, fine. But if they are already here, last year, 100,000 refugees came here. And they are mainly, the number one country that they came from is Congo and Africa. Second is the the Syrian, and then, uh, you know, then the Iraqis. So we need to really, the people are already here. They're already here. We don't need to fight about this issue we should block or not. Uh, Let it be with the president, with the authority, and we need to pray for that. But we need to deal with the people already here. There's thousands and thousands and millions are already here that we need to reach out for them. They are here because God brought them here so you and I can reach out to them and share the gospel with them. This is a mission opportunity for us as a church, not something political. Of course, we want protection for America. We want protection for our family. We want protection for our children and grandchildren. Uh, but they are here. So we, how you protect mm. America? The best way to protect America is to share the gospel with those people, because even if they are uh, deciding to do something horrendous and something not right, Christ will neutralize any terrorist, and he, he will make anyone who is evil into good. Mm-hmm. He will change the situation. And, you know, a lot of these nations also, people coming from, are closed nations. The, the nations that, you can't share the gospel in Iraq, but if an Iraqi come here, you can love him. You can share the gospel with him and care about him. And also similar thing to the Syrians. So we need to be active in both directions, but the correct way is to let the government do their job. And we, the church, we, the people of the church, we need to do our job. It's incumbent upon the church to really recognize these opportunities that God has already given us to minister to so many people who are in this nation. What would you say would be just a couple of, very briefly, a couple of action steps that the church, 
individual local churches can really be thinking about with respect to addressing refugees? I think the church can do ESL program for the refugees in their community. And through that, they can talk about the Bible and preach the gospel through it. The church can do food pantries, and through it, they can share the gospel with people. The individuals can teach people English and teach people driving. The ones that have businesses, they can bless people with jobs. And, you know, and looking back at the story of Ruth, how she was a refugee from Jordan to, uh, to Israel, and, uh, you know, Boaz cared for her, loved her, gave her uh, work she can do and she can eat. And out of that came David, and out of David came the Lord Jesus. So we need to think of, of our perspective needs to be a biblical perspective, a vision of what God can do, not worry too much about the new stuff, but worry about what what would the Lord want me to do. And the Lord himself fled from Israel to Egypt because he was chased and the, the king wanted to kill him. So, you know, I mean, we, we need to think deeply about how practical ways, loving somebody, caring about somebody, feeding somebody, inviting them to your house, teaching them English, uh, be there for them, and, and, and share the gospel. And the result is up to the Holy Spirit and the Lord and not up to us. And we leave it at there, and they are accountable before the Lord when we do that. But if we don't, we are accountable before the Lord for that. Jaleel Dewood here on The Intersection. You can learn more by visiting the website worldrefugeecare.org. This is The Intersection, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more by going to the website meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection podcast. You can also subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs can be accessed. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can get connected to video content as well. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Dave Cole is founder of the Outward Focus Network, an associate network leader and assistant superintendent at the Northwest Ministry Network. In our recent conversation, he shared material based on his book, What the Church Can Learn from Harley-Davidson, Connecting with Today's Culture. From that conversation, this is Dave Cole. Back in uh, the year 2000, I was pastoring a church in East Wenatchee. I'd been pastoring the church for about 18 years at that time and always had this vision, this desire to have a motorcycle ministry in the church. And uh, I had motorcycles uh, while I was a kid and growing up. And uh, then uh, while we were raising our children, uh, motorcycles had to go so that we could take care of other needs. And uh, a couple of guys in the church heard that uh, I had a liking to motorcycles. And so one day they showed up, wanted to go for a ride. I said, well, I don't have a motorcycle. And they said, hey, no problem. We've got you covered. And took me up to a gentleman's house. 
he opened the garage door and there was a brand new 1999 Road King Classic sitting in the garage. And they handed me the keys and I said, oh, I get to use this one for today. And they said, no, you don't get it. Uh, this one's yours. If you'll keep it clean, keep it insured, uh, use it for ministry, it's it's all yours. So nice. <laughs> uh, it took took me, uh, you know, I, I thought I'd better pray about it. And it took about a half a second uh, before I heard the Lord say yes. And and uh, that started the started the journey. Well, as you began to ride, how did you how did you see that that really God used that experience of of riding motorcycles for His glory and for the ministry He's called you to? You know, we started uh, taking different groups out and uh, began a motorcycle ministry in the church, and I noticed that people were really open to talk to us while we were out and about on our motorcycles, when we'd stop for gas or stop at a rest area, uh, people just come out of the woodwork and begin talking and sharing about their lives. Well, it gave us an opportunity to start talking about uh, Jesus. And uh, we would take these little New Testaments from uh, the Christian Motorcycle Association called Hope for the Highway. And uh, people were glad to receive it. And we just, we found that uh, there was some great uh, opportunities. I, I call them or, God-ordained intersections. Uh, if we would just be open to it and and really be alert to to people and their needs. So, as you look at some of the similarities between what you experienced with Harley Davidson's and motorcycle riding and doing ministry in that way, what are some essential messages that you learned that would be helpful for the church really to grasp? today? Certainly. Well, I think one that is very culturally relevant with what we're going through right now in our country is the term respect. Uh, What I found with the Harley-Davidson dealerships and the culture is they are very high on respect, uh, treating individuals with uh, value, with dignity. Uh, So if if you are a one percenter outlaw biker uh, coming into the dealership, you're treated with the same dignity, kindness as uh, you know a minister like myself coming through the doors or anyone else. And you know what's happening in society right now is there's a pressure to put people in titles and classifications. We want to stereotype people into groups, and then from there, if they're not like us. There's all bashing and hatred, and uh, Harley doesn't do that. They, they refuse to put people into groups and begin to look at them as individuals. I think the church really needs to lead the way in treating people with respect, because the Bible's very clear. We're all created in the image of God, and uh, we need to start there with uh, love and respect Uh, when people come in the doors. Dave Cole here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website outwardfocusednetwork.com. The Intersection continues now with John Zmirak, Senior Editor of The Stream. In reference to several columns that he had written, he discussed elements of political rhetoric in America with the congressional shooting as a backdrop. He also talked about what he saw as some of the spiritual underpinnings affecting the culture. Here now from that conversation is John Zmirak. It's just almost impossible to rationally explain 
how in England, let's say, um, the leader of the Liberal Democrat Party was forced to resign because it turned out that he was an evangelical Christian. Now, that was just in his private life. Publicly, he supported legal abortion and gay marriage. Uh, so he caved on all the political issues, but just privately, he was personally committed to those things, though they had no influence on his politics. He was hounded out of public office. Yet, in Britain, you can't criticize, you can't do anything against rabid Muslims who want, Muslim extremists who want to execute homosexuals, who, who want to genetically general mutilation of women, who believe in, in wife beating and torture and executing apostate Muslims. If you criticize them, you're an Islamophobe. But this this watered-down, slightly wimpy Christian leader of a, of a minor political party who didn't, wasn't even pro-life, uh, he has to be hounded out of office. There's no rational explanation for the, for the mental attitude that can do both those things at the same time, that can consider uh, a, a, a sort of cowardly evangelical Christian as a greater threat than a rabid Islamist Sharia supporter. Uh, to me, that that's a spiritual sickness that's clouding the rational judgment, and that's one of the spirits, a, a spirit of confusion and cowardice, uh, that, of just hiding under the bed. That that's one of the temptations. Another is savage vengeance. That's another deadly temptation which we saw at that mosque. There are all these temptations away from the straight and narrow path. We can we can make mistakes in any direction. Uh, I think the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis is a wonderful guide to seeing how the enemy tries to goad us from one, to one extreme or another. So if you're one kind of person, you're going to be tempted to cowardice, to cave in, to act like the mainline churches that have just given up on all the moral issues. If you're another type of person, you'll be goaded to violent, self-righteous extremes where you know, you'll know you end up scandalizing people and making the church look look unacceptable and, and driving other people away. Um, we have to avoid all extremes and follow the golden mean, the sort of the center path, the, the narrow path, the straight path that avoids overreactions. Avoids cowardice, avoids rashness, avoids sinful wrath, but also avoids being a weakling and, and who doesn't stand up and defend the innocent. So that middle path is what Christians are called to do, to called to follow, and, and it's, it's, it's a challenge. I think we need to see that when, when President Trump does things that appear self-destructive or futile, that squanders political capital rather than boosted when he falls into the traps of his political enemies. To some degree or other, he's falling into spiritual traps. He's falling into temptations. A lot of those temptations come out of personal weaknesses. We all have them. He's subject to flattery. He's subject to being baited and being goaded. Uh, I'm from the same neighborhood as he is in New York City, and I can tell you this, that's what we're all like from that neighborhood. You know, if you, if you if you insult us, we'll walk up and insult you back and look for a fight. I mean, 
It's just the culture there. Uh, that's how he got elected, partly. You know, uh, he the people wanted him, not Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush, to be the the person opposing Hillary, and he carried the Midwest in ways that they probably couldn't have. So this is the this is the man, warts and all, who, whom Providence gave us as a chance to stop the overt persecution of the church by the government in America. Um, he's got he's got his flaws as we all do. We need to pray that he has the strength to pursue the wise course, the course that is to his own best interests, the best interests of the country, the protection of freedom and unborn children and the sanctity of life, the decent, a decent, livable culture in America. We're not trying to set up a theocracy. We're just trying to stop the other side from setting up a theocracy mm, of point. their own God. John Zmirak here on The Intersection. The Stream's website is thestream.org. Well, we are nearing the end of today's edition of The Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. You will find a link there to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. You can also get subscribed to The Intersection Podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. You can also follow me on Twitter at Access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.